You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with Always. Typical Lydia. On today's show, we're going to be doing the 1980 cult New Year's classic, New Year's Evil. Oh, you did it pretty good. That was the most ridiculous thing. There's a lot of ridiculous things in this movie, as a matter of fact. I mean, New Year's itself is pretty goddamn ridiculous. Mm -hmm. This whole month is a little bit ridiculous when you think about it. But that voice, I tell you, I couldn't stop wondering why they made such a choice. It's some kind of synthesizer. It sounds to me like he's speaking through one of those mouth twanger things, but I can't quite put my finger on. Are you familiar with what this device might be? Or are we in a scream scenario where it's just magical technology? Don't question it. There is a clip on YouTube of a documentary on the filming of this movie I neglected to watch it, so I'm no help. I thought it sounded like a kazoo, very similar to the sound of a mouth harp, for sure, or Jew's harp, as it is sometimes called. Uh, my father played them, and my, his father did as well. We have some antique mouth harps in the house. But, uh, yeah, a, a, a kazoo or something, some sort of um, manual or analog modulator, because I believe he was holding it in his mouth, and it wasn't an electronic device, I don't believe. But then again, I've never played with a voice modulator. It looks like a fucking plastic straw that you would get at a cocktail bar. It doesn't seem to really work this the right way either, because he has to hold his mouth so peculiarly around this device, too. It, just, it was just weird. And I think that added to the weirdness, is him making these exaggerated motions with his mouth. It's interesting because we get to see this guy right off the hop. There's no mystery really here, like sort of. There's a sort of veiled mystery, but we see this guy using this voice modulator on the phone within minutes of this movie starting. It's like, I want a little mystery for my New Year's Evil. (laughs) This slasher is a bit of a mindfuck for people who are not familiar with this film as we said, it was released in 1980. One of the things that people need to remember about slasher films of this era was they were still figuring it out. Remember, this had come out only a few short months after Friday the 13th, only a couple of years after Halloween. And really this film owes a lot more, in my opinion, to films like Alice, Sweet Alice, or any of the sort of giallo slash slasher films that exist. Because truly, this is a black glove killer, up to the point in which he is wearing black gloves and killing with a knife. He is a master of disguise, a man of a thousand mustaches, but it still has way more in common with a giallo than a true slasher. What do you think? It truly does. Uh, Not only just the way that some of this is lit, the fact that he does have these black gloves, 
it doesn't have the right pacing and it doesn't have the right mood. They do have some of the score that fits within the Italian genre. The music, though, does not. Like, the soundtrack absolutely mm-mm, mm-mm. is something, like, 100% very American. Um, the discovery of the bodies, the usage of blood, that there's very little, but when we do see it, it's just done so artfully. Those sorts of things. The the police investigation and the way that the police insinuate themselves within the story is very giallo. Although, on the other hand, it has more in common with something like Alice Sweet Alice or the proto slashers and the new wave of it of American horror cinema than it does any European films. So it is this weird in between place and, and they don't hit the right note, so to speak, whether it be with the pacing and tone of the film or the music itself, because we can go on about this music. I, uh, I'm very excited to go on about the music in this film. This is one of my favorite things of any horror movie, and that is a bespoke theme song. Oh boy, do I love when horror movies have their own fucking song. I like the Prom Night song. I like the Howling song. I like quite a few songs. There's songs that aren't like the title song with the title in the song. Um, there's quite a few horror music songs that are pretty cool and catchy and I dig them and I wouldn't buy the vinyl, but I'm not a collector. So that said, if someone had bought me this particular soundtrack, I would wonder where we went wrong in our friendship (laughs) and who they thought I was, because this is no good. It is no good. It is so bad. It is so bad, but it does have a, a bespoke song. Where did you discover this? Is this something that... You've watched since the shag carpet days every single New Year's? Pretty much, yes. So this is one of those wonderful... For anyone who follows me on social media, I make the same fucking joke every year. My The joke is, and I'm going to do it again this year, if you go to Twitter or my Instagram and you go back to the dates on December 31st, I will say the same thing, and that is I would do a cool New Year's post, but there's a big party up at Eric Estrada's house. See you later. Um, And I do a picture of, because I actually don't own this movie, weirdly enough. I watch this every year off of YouTube. It's been there for a long time, for free, in its entirety. This was first shown to me and prefaced as a bad movie. Like, And believe me, it, it is. But at the same time... I fucking love it because it is so ridiculous. And one of the, 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 my favorite things to do is to show people this film, not so much because of the plot. And I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate this back in the day, but I can articulate it now. And it's my favorite thing to point out when I'm showing this movie to friends. It's the new wave LA punk rockers that are in this movie and these epically bizarre dance sequences that are numerous and lengthy and everyone looks like they are fucking on something. And I don't mean like they're like, they literally look impaired. They look like they are high on hallucinogens or at least drunk because we, we both know 
how movies work. We know how these crowd scenes are operated. Generally speaking, there's no actual music playing and they just have people acting as though you're dancing and listening to music and they just add the songs later. Or they will film it with music and it's a song that, you know, like that they'll never be able to put in the movie because it'll be too fucking expensive. Prom night, they did this. Friday the 13th, they did this. Every movie, they fucking do this. But this genuine, I genuinely feel like I'm looking at a coked out EDM early proto rave or something. And everyone is dressed so specifically and it's so mesmerizing. And especially on New Year's, you're in the mood for that, whether you've had some uh, drinks yourself or not, I don't know, but I know you don't really drink much anymore, but it adds to it. And so that is what I really dial into. I dial into some other things too, but first and foremost, it's these weird fucking dance songs, along with Made in Japan and the other fucking bands that play on stage during this shit. Yeah, the, the film, especially the horror, the 80s horror idea, of punks even in movies that almost get it right they get it so terribly wrong and for the bulk of them there's i I always find it's weird let alone the slow dancing punks because that is triple weird but the fact that they're like mauling each other and making out constantly uh spending time in punk spaces is rare there's some nights sure people make out people have sex it happens people are couples like there's lots of uh, long-term couples it's not that um, loose of a subculture, really, quite honestly. And there's a lot more asexual behavior that goes on in punk spaces. It's not like a, an overtly homophobic space either. So the fact that they throw around a lot of like homophobic slurs in a lot of other movies, not this one, but other movies, mm-hmm. and act very loose with their sexuality is it just always rubs me the wrong way and it seems so comedic let alone the fact that their hairstyles are typically anti-punk and the makeup choices are far more editorial so it's it's always just not punks they are not punks none of these people have they ever seen a punk doubtful they look like a cross between david bowie and the background characters in a Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, that is really the vibe they're going for. Or just, like, anyone sort of involved in that techno-pop scene that was going on in the early 80s, from the late 70s into the early 80s. It's so weird. Um, And I, I just became transfixed by that and the style of it. The rest of this fucking movie, there was a, if anyone ever wants to know why we haven't done this film sooner, honestly, it's because I would be embarrassed to suggest it because you, Lydia, I, 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 I don't want to like, you know what movie we should do? This thing that I'm acknowledging is dog shit. If I bring something to you in the show, I kind of want people to know that I believe in it. Even if other people don't like it, I believe in the film that I'm bringing to the show. And I do believe in this, but at the same time, I'm acknowledging that it's not, it's not the, like, a, this is a hidden gem. It's not. I just really like it. Does that make sense? It does, because we don't do a slam show. Like, if we did, you would definitely be all over that idea. Like, hey, I hate this movie. It's bad. People think it sucks. Let's talk about it. <laughs> uh, which we never do. Like, even movies that don't have a lot going for them, there's something in them that we know 
the other could appreciate. Or even if it's something within the movie that we like that the other doesn't, there's going to be elements in there that the other can appreciate. Because we're not here to push buttons in our listeners or ourselves, right? So there are so many fun facets of this. It is a point of interest and a curiosity just because of the time that it was made as a, as a early, early slasher, a very early slasher with, I don't know what sort of budget is a half million dollars. Cause that was the budget of this film at the time. That feels kind of high budget for a 1980s horror movie. For, especially since when you're really looking at it, what's the location costs of all that? It doesn't look like much. They're spending most of the, most of the movie are in just sets just any old, you could literally be filming this anywhere. It's not like they're in fucking Times Square or something, unless you count a grainy video from some CRT TV off in the corner. Film stock, we both know, is expensive, but it's not $500,000 expensive. And it's not like they got some big name actors. I know the guy who played Richard was uh, some sort of fitness guy, some sort of fitness guru or whatever the fuck. Or maybe that was the guy that played. Yeah, the guy that plays Derek was some sort of fitness guy. But other than that, like, I don't really think anyone was that huge. Uh, So I don't know where the money went. It does seem a little high. I think that what this movie has going for it is the limited number of New Year's horror movies that exist. Horror fans love a holiday they love to revel in that sort of counterculture and say, oh, you're all doing this on New Year's? Well, this is what I'm doing. Aren't I cool and different? That's snotty. I don't mean to be snotty because I do it too sometimes. But um, so I think that has a lot to do with its cult following, especially since the twist comes so late and it's and because there's a simultaneous plot with blazes fucking sun that is one of the most baffling aspects of this movie i don't know how anyone could like it has to be for ironic purposes you told me um that you did like this film or you said you fucking love that movie that that is like a horror fan's way of saying it's kind of shitty but i like it where did you first encounter this movie i had heard about it for years and years as one of those so bad it's good films and i'd watched it on youtube which is where i watched it again this year only a handful of years ago uh when i was living in the old place where we used to record Mm -hmm. same year i watched terror train and it would have maybe been on a suggestion of yours as far as what are we what could we watch for new years and i watched a handful of things and and not very good movies because there aren't many choices and we ended up doing terror train that year and so it hasn't been something that has really stuck with me the way it has with most horror fans who have watched it year after year or four years it was always something that i meant to get to and never did for a long time i think it had more pull when it first the first like maybe 10 years of its existence because the girl that plays blaze had a star role in the old show Happy Days. She played the Fawn's girlfriend. And more people would have remembered her at the time that it came out or for maybe 10 years after when the horror movie going public would have been of an age to remember that. 
Whereas we're not, we're not at all. <laughs> we didn't grow up watching Happy Days necessarily. It was on when I was a kid, but I don't remember any of the people except the Fonz, of course. Yeah, and, and here I am, like, I think one of the guys was like a fitness guy. I'm pretty sure he was the most famous person there. And you're just like, no, Wes, the fucking lead is from Happy Days. I was like, you know that immensely popular sitcom? And I'm sorry, I'm, I was born in 1983, so I... <laughs> I missed Happy Days. Who was the other main guy in Happy Days that is like a big director and stuff? Oh, uh, Ron Howard. Yeah. Yeah. Fans of Ron Howard rejoice. I mean, I suppose. (laughs) Even so, being my age, which is old as dirt, I tend to forget all about him and Henry Winkler. I don't think of them on a daily basis. Do you know how I remembered Ron Howard's name? And this will tell you exactly where I'm at as a human being. I had to think of his brother, Clint Howard, and that sparked my memory into what his very famous and prestigious director brother, (laughs) his name was. Because I'm just like, oh, who is the, it's the dude from Evil Speaks Brother. Huh, hmm, who's that? Oh my god, that is such a horror fan, younger <laughs> horror fan's way. Oh my god, we're so bad. We are so bad. This is like a tweet I saw the other day about people wondering why green is chosen for the falling letters in the Matrix introductions. And the Matrix is so much known for the look of the Matrix is this code in a, mm-hmm. in a waterfall kind of cascading down the screen in green. And why is it green? And no one after a certain age would have any idea as to why it's used like that because they hadn't seen a computer screen that looked like that here we are wondering about evil speak the the evil speak guy's brother oh my god (laughs) my mom from beyond the grave is smacking me across the back of the head (laughs) oh fuck oh that's so funny yeah but anyway fuck all that lids what's this movie even about anyways This movie is about so many things, the least of which is New Year's Evil. And how you can't be so self-centered to think that New Year's Eve happens on your midnight. It happens on several midnights before and after yours. It really does make it seem less special, doesn't it? Like We're all sitting here on the East Coast, and this film is like... Suck a fuck at East Coast, man. That's the first one. You're the nurse murder where people haven't even like, like maybe even fully gotten into the theater yet. Your midnight is over. I really like the introduction to the killer because we meet Blaze and the punks, basically. She's a punk new wave host of some sort doing some sort of like American grandstand, American bandstand sort of show top of the pops for punks. That's that's what I was thinking. It was like a punk top of the pops or something like that. Or, or I was trying to, I was, cause I was watching this with Cass and they were asking me about what, like, what is this show? What would this show be? And I, and I couldn't explain to the, cause I was like, this is, it's cause it's a radio show, but it's also televised and it's so big that it's being televised and broadcast nationally and it's an all-night marathon thing so blaze has got to be the level of radio personality that is just 
uber famous. Casey Kasem is the only person who has ever achieved that sort of fame that I can think of in in the U.S. and North America, really, mm-hmm. honestly, if mm-hmm. not worldwide. And that is the only show that would have ever been granted a New Year's Eve thing. And I believe he did have New Year's specials, but that is really it. And that is not punk and new wave music. Oh, fuck no. I was also thinking it could be a Dick Clark-like scenario, but even that, I'm pretty sure that was really just the the, the, the New York Rock and Eve was strictly an East Coast thing. I don't think anyone gave a shit about that on the West Coast. They might have watched it for the ball to drop, which they don't even mention the ball dropping once in this particular show, because we do start out, so to speak, on the East Coast, although this, this show is being broadcast from Hollywood, and they only kind of tangentially switch over to these different cities that they're showing these things in, in New York, Chicago, Boulder, Colorado, or I guess it's Boulder, somewhere in Colorado, Mm -hmm. and then over into Hollywood for the fourth time zone that they're covering in this show. And they only sort of mention this because everything does take place in and around this television studio. Mm-hmm. where Blaze and her son, who she keeps ignoring, her son who has something so important to tell her, I don't know what it is, I don't know if we ever find out, but her son has something so important to tell her while she's getting ready to get like prepare to host this show. And her assistant is puttering around, and she's just getting her final outfit on because I suppose it's 9 o'clock. She needs to be on for the first ball drop in New York. Oh yeah, and she's like putting on that fucking dress and like i said it's like ziggy stardust it's it's fucking devo it's like it's hard to really pin it down it's weird is what it is it's new wave it's techno pop more so than punk you're absolutely right and like the uh, early madonna before madonna um and and really i i know so little about the los angeles scene i just assumed that this was just something was this like a weird amalgamation? Because I'm aware of British punks. I'm aware of New York punks. I, d- I do not know shit about L.A. punks. So I was just like, I guess this is just their their pastel punks, I guess. I don't know. Pastel punk is a good way to put it. it I, I would be behind that in that this is just what punk is there. And then the music starts, which is rock. It is like diet in the wool rock there's a few chord progressions and drum beats or like a synth moment that make me think that okay they've they've got the new wave sound for this like moment or this one bar of this song but otherwise it is just rock music it's it's not really punk or new wave music whatsoever which is just doubly weird but you know i'm getting ahead of that we have had a killer call into the station. Once Blaze is getting ready to hit the airwaves, they start taking calls and she's reminding everyone, hey, it's the same number that you call from last weekend's show. Call in and request a song. Isn't that fucked up that that again alludes to how uber famous this person was? She's on television telling you to call into the show And she is basically saying, you know the number, call on the show. You know the one. Uh, I said out loud while I was watching it today to nobody in particular, that's the writer not wanting to think up a phone number. 
and they're just like, call the number. You know the one. It's the same one from last week. No broadcast television, no radio. They are going to tell you over and over and over. She's even Does she even really say the name of the station that she's fucking broadcasting for? Like, I don't think she does, but wouldn't it be fun if she would have come up with a more famous number? Like, it could have just been 555-6665, and then... Mm-hmm. Someone say, "Ooh, that's pretty evil," and she'd say, "New Year's <laughs> evil, yay!" Or eight six seven five three zero nine, the most famous phone number in the eighties. Like, <laughs> why not use a, a number that plays on this theme? Because she even says, "We got your New Year's evil right here," and then we have our song for the second time, and the band kicks in. All the while, her assistant is nowhere to be found. This is the most Giallo-like murder. It's not Giallo in the sense that it's not very graphic. The The kills in this are mostly implied. They do show you some aftermath occasionally, but you're not going to get glorious neon red blood everywhere. Um, and so, and this is the last I'll mention of like the Italian influences, just because this is the strongest one, in my opinion, particularly the, the Switchblade or or however you want to call it. And the this uh, kill happens. We don't even really know. We can get, I think it's uh, Valerie uh, is the name of the woman who's first kill. And she, we get the sense that she answers to Blaze, uh, helps manage her day to day. But honestly, it's kind of forgotten. And it's really more just used as a plot device later. What evil, and his name is E.Ville, and I think that's why he puts so much English on that E, because he, he's like, evil. He also says murder funny. He's like, murder. I'm going to commit murder. It's so fucking bizarre. Um, the, the, the premise essentially is evil is going to kill somebody every single time it hits midnight in a different time zone. He is then going to call Blaze back and prove to her that he has committed these crimes. And he does this, and this is not like, who's the killer, we never see their face. No, this isn't a Pamela Voorhees uh, scenario. There is, it, it literally is, we see his face, but the beauty of this and i suppose this is better than i give it credit for because he is a very um this richard character uh and that is kind of a spoiler because he refers to himself as different names throughout the entire film he's got a number of aliases he is very charming traditionally good looking sharp features high cheekbones long hair uh fit well-dressed smooth talker articulate really comes off as a serial killer um particularly when you hear about how they just spontaneously lie this this dude is not some sort of like pathetic sweaty loner fucking women are throwing themselves at this guy he can get laid in two seconds two seconds is all it takes in that hospital i mean after he places the phone call warning blaze that he's going to kill somebody every midnight leading up until midnight on the west coast 
so they've got mere minutes to spare before the first midnight. She hangs up on him, and although it just seems like, you know, that's that's the end of her taking him seriously, she does take him very seriously and does call the police. He has disrupted her show, right? So she does call the police. Whether the police want to take her seriously at first or not is questionable. Considering she's some sort of punk goddess, so the police just think this is what you get for your wild and crazy ways. <laughs> Cut to Richard running from the payphone into an asylum. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. The crazies are running to the asylum. I like this. But I also doubly like that oh, quite a bit of the beginning of this movie takes place in a hospital. I love hospital horror and there's not enough of it. So I was very pleased to see this taking place. These night nurses are wonderful. It's uh, an insane asylum. So it is a little more quiet, I guess, than a full functioning hospital. So that explains why there's not that many people in the aisles, perhaps. But he meets up with this night nurse that is the cutest thing. And he poses as somebody who's ready to begin an internship, I suppose, and do rounds at night. And he has a bottle of champagne owing to the smooth talkingness of it all. He is a smooth talker and talks her into finding somewhere quiet for a drink. And then they begin making out, even though they've known each other all of five seconds. And at first, they don't even know one another's names. I mean, she's trying to play a little coy. She's, she's like, oh, I've only known you five minutes. I was like, man, your tits are out. Like, ma'am, <laughs> ma'am, I, you got some whole ass titties out. Okay, like, this is not a judgment. I am not here to kink shame. We've all been there. But I just, I just, um, it's so wild to me. This guy is like one of those pickup artists. Now, he is going to murder her. Um, he takes with him the, a marvel, Lydia, a marvel of modern technology a super giant radio slash cassette player that looks like it weighs 25 pounds. Who is the biggest nerd in the room? This guy. <laughs> he manages it to make it work, Lids, because sometimes he hides it in a bowling bag, the coolest accessory a man could possibly carry. Isn't that fantastic? And it's not even like that cool of a boombox. It's not even a boombox. It's a piddly portable picnic player. Yeah. It's so shitty. It's like he fucking got it on sale at Radio Shack. And he's like, yeah, this is my murder radio. But he uses it a lot. like, And, and not just to record his murders, which he does do that. Um, the, the, uh, the murder does take place. He does record it. And he plays it for Blaze. Now, when Blaze hears this murder, again, she's already taking it seriously. But she's genuinely disturbed by this and this is when the police are really getting involved and the police are really all over this case to the point in which the only person that has heard this call is blaze and blaze has also heard the only bit of evidence that the police have so the police are going off of all evidence that blaze has provided them and the cops then proceed to sort of sit her down and explain back to her 
what she has already explained to them, assumedly, and he and it almost like you gotta understand, okay, what this guy is going to do is commit a murder every single time it hits midnight in different time zones. It's like, yeah, fucko, I said that to you. That's why you know it. It's so bizarre. They also have like this um, po- police psychoanalysis or this crime analysis, uh, what do they call it? Profiler. Uh, sorry. Um, do you think that you're more of a true crime expert than I am? It was how common was profiling in this era? Does this come off as accurate? Because this is like, has Mindhunter happened yet or what? It's beginning to happen. It is ahead of its time. If they were privy to what was going on at the beginnings of the behavioral science unit, then kudos to them. They very well could have been, for sure. There's a lot of high-profile murders in that area. They name-drop a few of the big ones. Uh, not so much the Son of Sam, but mm-hmm. the Zodiac would have been terrorizing that area, for mm-hmm. sure. So they would have been privy to the idea of the beginnings of behavioral science. It, it, it is, it, it is a, a bit of a stretch in some respects, and it's even a bigger stretch when you look at this guy and he is a fucking dead ringer for Ted Bundy. And I thought that was hilarious because you basically got Ted Bundy doing what Ted Bundy likes to do most, which is psychoanalyzing other serial killers. And <laughs> the psychoanalysis provided doesn't really ring true, mostly because they are just reaching, absolutely reaching. And maybe that's a lot of what profiling was at the time in the 1980s was just grasping at straws or thinking of the one thing that you could try and lump them all together. It's why a lot of the typologies haven't persisted over time because you can't really lump everybody into one or two categories, right? And that they mentioned that all the breasts of all those victims were mutilated. And I was like, I want to see mutilated breasts. Why haven't you shown (laughs) us any mutilated breasts? I didn't see any fucking mutilated breasts. Like most of them have their tops on for crying out loud. So like, how how can you say that this is a, a psychosexual sadist when we're not seeing this as viewers? Like, oh, that's so unfair. But yeah, very strange. So yes, it rings true to a certain degree, although it wasn't common parlance. It very well could have been amongst people interested in murder. They certainly weren't interested in punk music. They had to be interested in something. The, the name dropping of... Um... Berkowitz and the uh, Zodiac killer using them as examples of people who communicate with the media and that uh, sort of thing that seemed okay. Yeah. That was pretty well established up until that point. I believe Berkowitz by 1980 had been caught. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think he had been caught by 1980. Maybe not. I know the Zodiac was still, you know, is still, um, but um, the breast thing, I had never heard that before. I had never heard about, I've heard of, you know, dehumanizing, uh, desexualizing women by damaging, like if you know them, you dehumanize them and damage their face beyond recognition. Or if you just don't want them to look like a human anymore, if you want to desex somebody, you'll remove their genitals. But I'd never heard specifically about 
breast mutilation. And, and, and like you said, mutilation is a stretch because as far as I'm concerned, it, it really seems to be more, well, he's stabbing them and the chest is where their heart is. It doesn't look like, like he's not like slicing off a breast or a nipple or something like that. It's not graphic. He's literally, we, the aftermath of the damage looks like they've just been stabbed in the chest. But I'm like, that is where their heart is. So I might stab that too if I wanted to kill somebody. Yeah, it's not the fault of a woman that her breast is over her heart. And breast mutilation typically has some sort of excision where things are removed or there's several stab wounds to, yeah, disfigure, deface, remove, unsex, you know, those sorts of things is more what I think of when I think of a mutilation. And the best person to ask, of course, is to tune into Dr. Lee Meller's Murder Was a Case podcast where he talks a lot about it. One of his thesis was on the um, perpetrators that communicate to the media including by torture kill the btk killer dennis raider and the zodiac of course and son of sam and others so he would have a much better point of view on that and this victim as soapbox sort of paradigm where people are expressing he has many different breakdowns of this and i am no expert but the expressive transformative uh, murder that's going on where you're saying something by the victims you're choosing. And that is and isn't apparent here because he is, yes, stabbing them to kill them quite quickly because he's on a fucking time crunch. He has one hour to find another victim and he's stalking them randomly, yet he is picking blonde women, naughty girls, naughty women, or however he wants to define it. Typically they're blonde, save the very first kill. They're these blonde girls seems to be what he's going for. And so he has like an mo in a way that is dictated by his time constraints the geography the availability of these women all those sorts of things and his um male wiles i guess his smooth talking player sort of ways he needs to not only find this girl get her uh reasonably seduced and isolated and then murder them quite quickly and move on to the next in a busy populated city. So like to stab them in the heart, he's not taking time to mutilate people. And that's typically something you do when you have time. Running gun killers aren't going to spend time mutilating a, a victim. And typically they remove the body to somewhere else to carry out these deeds. If it's whether a place of sanctuary to them or just a secluded area, they need time to exact these sorts of things that are usually coupled with some sort of sexual attack in one way or form, whether it's the sexual attack on the body or there's a sexual component in the area, whether it's masturbatory or whatever. So like none of that is fucking apparent. None of it. He stabs them quickly and runs. So I think it's just, it holds no water. And like I said, I didn't see a mutilated breast whatsoever. There's something else going on here, Lids. There's something, oh, I don't know, unhinged going on with Blaze's son who looks at most three years younger than her. And that is young old Derek who shows up with a bouquet of roses and a velvet sport coat and looking like a real himbo. And the film is going to periodically return to him 
while he is muttering, pacing, um, shaking, stammering, and tightly pulling nylon over his head and putting on fucking Jordy LaForge glasses. What the fuck is this aspect of this fucking plot? I thought that it was a suicide attempt because he was also taking pills. He calls his mother downstairs at one point or is she upstairs. I'm not quite sure where the hotel room is in relation to the it's studio. Not clear. But you have to take an elevator to get there. I believe it could be the penthouse. So the studio is maybe the floor below or something like that. But suffice it to say, he's he calls his mother and says, there's something important I need to talk to you about. And she's like, okay, well, later, honey. Talk to you later. Bye. Hangs up on him while he's eating pills and and doing all this warped stuff you just said. And like, I love the word himbo, by the way. I thought that was perfect uh, because he goes from like seemingly supportive and stoked to be there with roses and all. And then to like, I thought he was going to eat those fucking roses. I thought he was so whacked on quaaludes or whatever it is that he's taking and it seems quaaludes are the drug of choice for everyone in this goddamn place because they're just <laughs> acting very weird. I, I thought it was a suicide attempt. Like, that's really where I thought this was going. I thought that he had killed the assistant and <laughs> then was remorseful and that the assistant's death had nothing to do with all the other murders. I'm sorry, I'm still laughing at quaaludes. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I think that those as a drug died out in the eighties. <laughs> but no, but seriously though, um, I was listening. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I th this only works as a red herring if we didn't literally see the face of the guy <laughs> committing all of these crimes and outlying that he's the one that's doing it, and he's clearly working by himself. Because what's Derek doing to contribute to this? Like, and, and all, all of this is to lead to the ending, which is to just be... So many other horror movies have done this before and since. Like the... Ah, <laughs> looking towards the screen at the credits. And oh shit. Without doing all of this fucking falderall. Which just, like... Like, this is one of the aspects of this movie where I feel as, like, Quaaludes is such a... <laughs> I feel like you are participating in a drug trip throughout this entire fucking movie. Not, to, like, things are so... He, the killer changes his name and appearance constantly. Clothing constantly. There's these weird dances. The bands are changing here and there. Like, everyone's dressed to the nines in these, like, borderline psychedelia punk clothes. And, like, and just the the weird music that is going to, like, like bouncing between this fucking weird prog rock new wave stuff to, like, to, like, traditional 80s synth score um, to, like, this weird, like, weird fucking sound effect that they do constantly that is not a prelude to anything like they just like just start inserting it into the film and like maybe that's how come like so many times when i'm watching this film like when i'm watching a movie for the show as you know you really sit and you pay attention to it and i realize i've probably seen this movie 10 times at least 
maybe more, probably more. And like, I think this is the first time I paid attention to it to the level that I did. And I, it was baffling. It's just baffling. One thing I like about his master of disguise thing, his shtick is that it ramps up much like the stress level in blaze's behalf. And like, that's one of the, the better performances in this film is blaze really, honestly, as much as I think she's incongruent with a lot of what her character is supposed to be, uh, her performance and her stress level is, is quite realistic, really, honestly. But his, oh man, he he's just a regular dude. He's regular Richard, tricky dick, as you might say. And then he <laughs> puts on a mustache. That's all he needs, just a fucking mustache. Think... Why is he ex- like if if no one else knows him, if he's just a random crazy man, why is he putting on disguises? I don't know. It's not fucking Halloween, so he's putting on a mustache, and then he changes his look quite entirely to a priest. And then he goes from a priest to, like, some sort of sports outfit, some sort of leisure suit, or, like, I don't know what you call that, Adidas-sponsored apparel. Yeah, he's, like, he's like straight-up tracksuit mafia. Yeah. And before the tracksuit mafia, he's a cop. Oh, yes, he's he, a cop. He, to get into the building. A, yeah. a fully-dressed cop at that, believable enough to walk past other cops and not even speak to them, just walk on past them, and they don't even look at him. It's it, it, Billy Club and everything. And then he throws on a fucking mask, which is like a Nixon mask or something. I believe it's a Nixon mask. It is supposed to be a Nixon mask. I only know that because of a book that I read that references this film and refers to it as a Nixon mask. But I'm sorry. Like, what? Like, it's deranged. Like, the creepiest thing about this movie is that fucking mask. And I felt like if he had worn that mask through the whole thing, I mean, the movie wouldn't work because he can't pick up ladies in a bar with that ridiculous fucking thing on his face. But like if it was because when he puts on that mask, all of a sudden this movie becomes terror train. It becomes um, Alice, sweet Alice, just like a weird, deranged, off-putting mask. Uh, Curtains, another great example. The mask is like kind of the whole the whole thing. I want to talk a little bit about uh, his second kill with the mustache, the mustachioed kill. The reason why I want to talk about this is it because it's not because of the line, uh, there's a big party up at Eric Estrada's place, which is very, very funny to me. I don't know why. Um, Eric Estrada, if you are under the age of 35, was a sex symbol. Uh, he was he was on Chips. It was a, it was a cop show, um, kind of like um, Baywatch if they were like California motorcycle policemen. Um <laughs> And it would have been very hip at the time. Very, very hip. California Highway Patrol is what chips are. And that was a very popular show. Right up there with Magnum P.I. Yeah, you may as well saying that you're going to like fucking George Clooney's house or something like that. Yeah, very true. Very true. So you like this Ron Burgundy look? Uh, Yes, he does look like fucking Ron Burgundy. (laughs) The thing I love about this sequence is... So he meets this woman at the bar. And... His the his victim has a roommate. And when you really watch this scene, this is one of the most bizarre fucking sequences of events. So if you watch this scene, her roommate gets picked up to ask to be to to do any of you lovely ladies want to have a dance. And then she wordlessly 
this is important, wordlessly gets up to presumably go dance with this man. Then all of a sudden Richard shows up and woos the other woman who sounds like a cross between like Arlene Sorkin, the original voice actress for Harley Quinn and Betty Boop sort of mixed into one. Then does, does I am, I'm a businessman. I, I'm an investor for famous people. I got, I came in here for a drink. There's a big party up at Eric Estrada's house and I got to go there, but Hey, do you want to come along? This woman asks her roommate to go with her, approaches Richard in his Mercedes. This woman still has had no fucking lines of dialogue. This is technically her second scene. The third scene that this woman is in is in the car with the three of them, Richard, the the Arlene Sorkin lady, and her. She does not fucking talk, even when addressed. And then, all of a sudden, when her friend mentions her um, having IBS, then she says her first line of fucking dialogue. She has three lines that she says in this scene, and then she never talks again. Even when Richard is directly talking to her and tells her to go into this liquor store to buy alcohol, he hands her money. She looks at the money, looks at him, sort of half bows like he's a swami, and then just like goes into the liquor store. And then the, I'm sorry, I'm talking about this so much. And then the liquor store has one of the most fucking wild scenes. Go, listeners, watch the fucking liquor store scene in New Year's Evil. There is a man counting change. And a hundred is your change. And he looks at her with the sincerity of, of as if she just saved his dog from a fucking sinking car. And he was like, thank you. And then she slowly blinks silently and bows to him. And then it cuts back to him. And then he sincerely, with that same look in his eyes, soulful look in his eyes, says, Happy New Year. And the scene is over. Because now she's going to, again, with no dialogue, find her dead friend and then get murdered herself. It's a, what is this scene? I'm sorry I talked for five minutes straight. That's okay, because this is the David Lynch portion of the show, where we get the mute girl with a story to tell. And one of her only lines is like, I swear anything that enters your head comes out your mouth. And it's very strange because she's talking about how her friend just will not fucking shut up. And she doesn't. She's a very, very talkative girl. And everything that comes into her head probably does fall out her mouth. But nothing falls out this girl's mouth. And she looks kind of like Princess Diana. Which is kind of hilarious to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She really does. You're so right. Richard is fucking pissed. This is kind of like all the charm that he had that he was able to muster to get her into the car is gone now. He's like fucking driving with both knuckles up by his face like the Kilroy was here graffiti. And and he's like, what? What? Oh, yeah. Okay. What? 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 Okay. All right. Fine. Because he needs to do his murder. It's the clock's running out, and now he's got two people to worry about. Yeah, it's like six minutes to ten. I do like this scene and how it ends, though, in that she comes out silently, as you noted, and finds her friend's shoe, much like Cinderella, on the pavement, and is pissed in a way, in her way, the wordless 
huffiness of it all. And she walks a little further and finds the second high heel shoe that belonged to her roommate. And then carries over to a dumpster where she can see a portion of her friend's dress hanging out Mm -hmm. of it. And she's already kind of panicking, doesn't want to touch it. And she's a very good actress at this point as far as her body language. Mm -hmm. And she does go to open the dumpster and inside is Richard with a lighter and he flicks it. So it's his, just his face (laughs) in the dumpster. (laughs) Like, wow, what an industrious murderer. He jumped in a dumpster for these girls. He chokes the other one with a bag of weed, which is pretty good. (laughs) If there was even anything in that bag. Yeah hilariously now the police do find these bodies which i think is good there's not a lot of body discovery at the very beginning we do have a a kill that we don't see uh, the aftermath of right away and we see the nurse pretty much right away so we have a little bit of lag time between these girls being killed in the dumpster and the cops finding them in the meantime we get our second sort of b plot thing like because because he's in the car with these two girls and one is acting surreal to say the least like david lynch very well could have directed this segment and no one could have done it better and it wouldn't have changed a bit um with the the silent girl and i thought like maybe the guy at the bodega was like looking for a tip from her or was as weirded out that she didn't talk as we are it was just very weird but Richard changes into a priest outfit after this. And he's driving around in a Mercedes, uh, dressed as a priest, with pictures of nuns on the car seat beside him. And I'm not really sure, like, is he going to a monastery to find particular nuns to kill after he's been finding just random girls at, like, a a random-ish nurse and these two random girls at a bar? And, like, what is his M.O., really? But then he mistakenly runs over a biker gang. (laughs) Uh, He runs over the biker gang while he has Jeffrey Dahmer glasses on. Um, You know, Jeffrey Dahmer wouldn't be famous uh, for a couple of years yet, but I just thought that was very funny. Um, He ends up like at a fucking drive-in. And the first thought that I had was who... Who's going to a drive-in on New Year's Eve? I, I It's not that that's so unheard of. It's more that I would never consider it. So I didn't, when I don't consider something, Liz, if you didn't know, if something's not in my life, I just assume it doesn't happen. Well, this should happen in your life. It's a New Year's Eve spookathon of 10 films. And on the screen right now is Blood Feast. It's a double feature right now with some pretty bloody movies, but they're playing 10 horror movies back-to-back at the Spookathon at this drive-in theater. So he had a good idea to deek into the drive-in to try and avoid these bikers, but the bikers just blow on past him. And I can't see this being permitted. These bikers are tearing around a drive-in while the movie's playing. People would be absolutely pissed. There would be way more people. This would turn into a Mm -hmm. brawl. Way more than just some bikers chasing down this priest who ends up stabbing a few of them. So there's some extra bonus bodies. There is. Meanwhile, there's a there's some doings of transpiring lids. We got ourselves a, an acute case of tits out at the movie theaters. Well, what could a movie theater drive-in be without some tits action? This sequence is interesting because, and I think, what I think I like about this movie is every, everybody like talks about how much they like Ghostface because of how just inept of a serial killer 
he always looks, regardless of who is behind the mask. We don't always know, but um, he's always tripping and getting hurt and fucking up. And like people are getting away constantly. It's because typically in, in slasher movies, um, the final girl only gets away because everyone else has been murdered first and scream. Like Sydney's always like the first, if not second person that's getting attacked. And she just wily. But um, this is the same thing. Richard fucks up constantly. And this is one of the most elaborate examples of him, his plan kind of falling on its face because he didn't expect to hit those bikers. This was not, he is good at isolating and smooth talking women, but a group of 10 pissed off bikers, that is not in his wheelhouse. He does, he is not equipped to fucking deal with that. So by running into this movie, uh, movie theater, by running into this place and then ending up with the girl that he ends up with, kidnapping her, essentially, has nothing to do with his priest outfit. Like whatever character he was going for, whatever he, wherever he was going with those images, we will never know. I wonder if it has something to do with his ultimate motivation, which is the flimsiest shit I've ever seen put into a script delivered by people who, who at least are acting as though this is not the flimsiest shit they've ever heard in their entire life. When he is, this girl escapes him because she fucking escapes and he's looking at her for her in the bleachers and shit with like cops on his trail on his tail, he essentially has to abandon this entirely. So we are not seeing this like invincible, immaculate apex predator. We are seeing a dude who is very good at one thing. And when he can't do that one thing, he's fucking Steve Urkel. It reminds me quite a bit of BTK who fucked up more often than not. And serial killers that get caught and are questioned and are open enough to talk about it will remind us that it's not fucking easy. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about it that is easy, especially not when they try and plan stuff. None of them are really criminal masterminds and nothing really goes according to plan. And this is a really good example of that, of him trying very hard to stick to his little plan. But yeah, he never realizes whatever religious angle thing. And I would have loved to have seen that, although I do equally love this biker angle, which is the most random thing in the entire planet that he has run over these bikers and it doesn't just become like a five minute segue. It becomes the rest of his trajectory. But at least the girl was blonde. She was a young, pretty blonde girl. And she was at a drive-in, so she would have been being naughty mm -hmm. or whatever that would have fit into that particular MO. So whatever he did would have worked if he would have actually killed her. I'm not clear on if there was any sort of countdown at the time because he seems to be very equally important to him to get this on tape while there's a countdown going on so it's exactly midnight and everyone knows it by his recording of the tape i don't even see him carrying around his boom box at this time but i don't know if i just didn't look very closely because i was so wrapped up in the biker angle <laughs> he ends up having to like hitchhike to where he's going because he's essentially missed a deadline so he, at the very least, manages to get a hitchhike and he says, like, go with God or whatever. So at least the priest outfit came in handy. 
now they as they the cops have been discovering bodies and they have basically put everything on high alert so they've told their new wave punks that you're not allowed to go outside doesn't seem to matter because like as as i was reminded of in 1980 you could just smoke in buildings like so what would they really need to like go outside for and they don't like that but now you know security is tip top so he's got a brick a police officer to be able to steal his clothes just to get back into the building and i don't know if like he didn't it didn't seem like he accounted for that i don't know if he thought that if he was able to commit another murder some police or enough police would be trying to investigate that body but he certainly must know that's not how police there's more than five cops right they don't need they don't need the cops from the building to go to the crime scene. They can stay there while other cops and detectives handle a crime scene. And we discussed on a previous show about found objects, how some people might rag on this because, ooh, there's a brick there. Why is there a brick there? Handy that there's a brick there for him to use as a weapon. There's weapons laying all over. There's weapons laying all over the entire yeah. planet. Every city street has a couple weapons laying on it for whatever reason. Because we're in a fucking a purge video game. I have no <laughs> idea. But so the brick thing was cool. And the fact that he can split up the cops, even though they're kind of on high alert, they've just got reports of this massacre at the drive-in theater. So they are on high alert. They've locked down the building. They shouldn't be taking smoke breaks or leaving one another alone at their posts at all at this time. So I can see why he would think that he can just go in there and muscle through these police officers because they're friendly enough. <laughs> I definitely thought that the cop, when he's in, even when he's in the uniform, he would like the cop would just like, hang on a sec, buddy. I don't I don't know you. I know every cop that's here right now and I don't know you. Or, he, you know, or like Richard would just like walk past him, and just be like, yep, Constable Normalman, nothing to fear. Um, but that's not the case. Doesn't even get stopped. And he manages to make one more fucking costume change. That bright white Adidas tracksuit with the blue on it and a Nixon match, a cartoonish Nixon. Like if you were to do a caricature of Richard Nixon and then also combine it with a clown face, almost that is kind of what you're getting at. Cause uh, Cass was watching this with me and they said like that's Nixon right Richard Nixon and I was like I guess he's got the chin and the nose but other than that it doesn't fucking look like Nixon it doesn't and and then they they said well you know Michael Myers uses the William Shatner mask it doesn't really look like William Shatner I was like oh contraire mo frere that does look like William Shatner if you paint it right um, this wouldn't, you could paint this all day. It's not going to look like fucking Richard Nixon, but I think it's a Nixon mask. It's funny that his name is Richard. Lids, would you like to tell our audience who Richard actually is? Richard is actually Blaze's husband, who they were trying to get a hold of at the very beginning of the show. And of course, without any sort of fanfare, he is in the hotel room, even though the police have accompanied Blaze in and out of it. And when the police leave so she can get dressed, he comes out of the John, as he says in that 80s vernacular. <laughs> and she's just like, it's no big deal. Oh, my husband is here after all. Well, I'll see you after the show, okay, baby? And the cops are like, who's this? How'd he get in here? And she's like, oh, it's my 
husband. It's no big deal. And totally like passes it off. So while we as the audience, I suppose from a writer's point of view, should be reeling, absolutely reeling in our seats and terrified because no one takes us seriously, we can't either. <laughs> so we're just sort of like, oh, okay. So that that's who the killer was. Cool. I, like I said, I have seen this movie a bunch of times. I am putting my fucking a hand to God. If you were to ask me to explain why Richard is doing this and where this plan came from, all of it, I cannot do it at least concisely because he's coming at it from a bunch of different angles. If you want to take it down to the base level, the the profile that the police offered about the mutilated, mutilated in Air Bunnies, um, breasts is correct. He hates women. That's, I guess, I don't, he hates his wife because she is very rich, very successful. And I suppose he's a bit, he, like his son, is a himbo. He's a kept man who has an allowance. Let me tell you something, Lids. Let me fucking tell you something. <laughs> I am yeah. ready mm -hmm. to commit to being a kept man. You want me to stay home? And anytime everyone's just like, could you imagine if your partner made more money than you and was like the, the primary breadwinner winner? I'd be like, yeah. Th like, would that intimidate you or would that bother you? No. Fucking no. I, listen, I'm not saying that I would sit at home like gaining weight and eating bonbons. I will clean. I will what cook. I will walk the dog. Like, what do you need me? I will take care house husband. I'll do that. I'll do that. Like, why is he mad? Lids? Why is he mad? I'll marry blaze. I don't understand why he's mad at all. Cause he doesn't seem to be that mad about it either because he's put up with it for this long. Their son is what, 45? I don't fucking know how old Dwayne is or whatever his name is. Derek. It's Derek, yeah. Derek, the 45-year-old son who is, you know, he's got a big surprise for his mother. Um, I, surprise, I'm, I'm not your son. I'm actually your brother that was born three years before you. Exactly. I keep wishing that it would be like, surprise, I have a crazy brother who's doing all these murders. A brother that you birthed that you didn't know about. That'd be great. You can get away with that with that amount of fucking drugs in the 80s. But no, no real surprise comes to fruition. I guess the surprise is that dad is there, which he could have told her numerous times, mm -hmm. much like in The Hills Have Eyes, where they could have talked about the dog being dead numerous fucking times. If that's the big surprise, is it surprise I'm uh, absolutely wasted and maladjusted and having a disassociative psychotic break? in the hotel room alone uh because we don't really see derek during this interaction with richard and his wife uh where he's freaking out saying that he's being unmanned due to her actions as a successful female and that she's flirted with their son and turned him on i, I don't know was if it was her pantyhose that he was pulling over his head i didn't get any sort of sex vibe off of it but i suppose this has happened off screen that was that's one of the strangest lines in a movie filled with strange lines this whole trying to turn our son on 
like when did that happen nobody ever mentioned that you they maybe have five scenes together none of which are sexual none of which they're alone she like turning her son on like she she can barely look at him for five seconds without doing something else like I, i i just don't and and you you get the sense that perhaps um richard and derek as father and son were commiserating together because derek is unhinged as well that's fucking obvious maybe derek had interpreted sexual feelings towards his mother as his mother turning him on even though she's not doing anything maybe she was maybe she was going to the fridge to get a glass of water in her nightgown and he saw her thigh and and he became aroused and he was like oh mother is turning me on like maybe maybe it's like that weird burial ground shit or whatever and like this seems to be a conversation that we are not privy to and we're supposed to infer that it's an imagined feeling because blaze literally has no idea what the fuck they're talking about neither do i nobody knows what they're talking about and i'm wondering if it's just something that's only meant to make sense to Richard. Like he's just, he has manifested all of these things because he's quote unquote crazy or unhinged or however you, psychotic. Or if we're supposed to be 1980s women coming off of the cusp of the uptight 50s into the free love 70s and 60s and believing that all women are wicked and evil and this is the cusp of the satanic panic where women are definitely evil and they're dirty pillows and all that <laughs> stuff. So are, are we supposed to just swallow this and be like, yep, she probably was trying to pork her son. I think you might be onto something with that. Like the, the whole satanic panic. I mean, she is a new wave punk rocker, like a, the Lord of the new wave LA punk rocker. She's their leader. She's their spokesperson. Um, it actually kind of strikes me more as, you know, when you first meet Blaze's character, they're calling her like Diane or, or whatever her name is. And then all of a sudden she puts on the dress and she puts on the makeup and all of a sudden she's blaze and stuff like that. Um, for listeners, if you don't know, when you're in radio, you're kind of, you go where the jobs are, right? And you do the radio stations that they tell you to, that you can get hired at. So if you're a huge um, country Western music fan, um, you could try to get on a country Western music station, but that might not be the place that's hiring. And all of a sudden you're in... Uh, you're on a radio station that plays punk rock music. And so they say, okay, your name is Blaze now and you are a punk rock fucking queen. And, you know, you got to like fucking be hardcore. That's how Blaze comes off it to me as, is like someone from like Missouri who was told all of a sudden that she's like a punk rock LA goddess. And she's like, hey guys, yeah, racking on. It's New Year's evil. <laughs> like has no idea what the fuck she's doing. So like maybe that persona is not the person that Richard married in his mind. And then you coupled that with the notion that she has become incredibly successful and he is not the breadwinner. And and you find out that he killed the assistant um, sort of as not part of the plan, but to eliminate a support system and also a secondary oppressor in his mind because he he viewed her assistant as yet another person that dictated what he can and cannot do uh, with his money and time and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Like Blaze is not available to him 24-7 because she is, you know, having a career whereas he has a tracksuit, you know, 
Maybe that's it. And likes getting wasted. <laughs> that's what he they suspect that he's doing at the beginning of the show. I, I guess he spends a lot of time inebriated because it comes as no surprise to Blaze that her husband is inebriated. Probably how he spends a lot of his time and her money. So it's just a dysfunction upon dysfunction. We find out after a fun little elevator ride up and down <laughs> that he had been incarcerated at that insane asylum. So he has all sorts of underlying things that we're not privy to that come out in info dumps and come out in info dumps basically as he's being carted off in an ambulance. Uh, what do you think of this shootout? Like the, the bumbling cops have finally converged once he has his wife trapped in an elevator or more accurately in the elevator shaft because he's also done some almost like MacGyver bullshit with some crate of tools that happen to be near the main electronic board for the elevator. I found that this was the biggest stretch. You know, there's a lot of stretches of the imagination and a lot of suspension of disbelief you go through. We've highlighted most of them from the music to the bikers and all of this. Now, okay, so he knows how to rig the elevator all of a sudden. Do you know how to rig an elevator? Uh, no. I mean, I know how to irritate people by pressing all the buttons at once. I know how to um, put an elevator on service. That's pretty much all I know how to do. Do I know how to like open an elevator without the, 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 the box inside of it so you're exposed to the elevator shaft? I don't know. He's done it twice because... That's where he stuffed um, Blaze's assistant's body. We see her in a nice little jump scare headshot. This whole sequence is, how many times have I said baffling today? 20 times? <laughs> Not enough times since we're heading into the bafflingest of them all. There's so much set up for this premise that I feel as though it started, like this movie gets a lot of flack. Um, if you watch documentaries about horror movies, like if you watch that big documentary series about horror movies in the 1980s. I can't remember the name of it. Darkness or Dark something. And, or if you watch uh, horror movies about Friday the, th or sorry, documentaries about Friday the 13th, which there are many. Um, this film is always lumped in to slideshows of after Friday the 13th, everyone wanted to, or after Halloween, and Friday the 13th, everyone just wanted to exploit holidays. Everyone just was like, give me a holiday. I can do holiday slashers all day fucking long, which I don't think is very fair because that might've been like, to me, this film is kind of like, if you think of a good title and you have to think of a movie afterwards, but I don't even think like New Year's Evil, they probably got the title after. But I think this movie was like the premise is what they thought of first. Like the basic premise. Guy kills people at midnight every time zone. Movie. Sounds pretty cool. And it is a cool concept. It's It would be... And everything else was secondary to that plot. No more so is evidence of that than the fact that it's the last 15 minutes of this movie where they try to unpack 45 minutes of movie they could have parsed all of this shit out to allow me to process this shit but you want me to process all of this fucking information while you are uh, 
chasing, being chased by the cops, getting into a fucking shootout, having a, um, a, an intense conversation with your wife uh, in an elevator, then rigging her to that elevator and stretching her up. And then now you're, a, you've done that and now you've run away and while well, cops are chasing you, now you've made it up to the fucking roof. You put on your Nixon mask again and you start espousing Shakespeare and then you just jump off of a fucking roof. Like, like what the, like, give me five fucking seconds to watch you, please. Like, stop just, like, throwing shit at the fucking wall and let me process something because it shouldn't take me multiple viewings to, like, fucking figure out what the hell the killer wants. You know, the reveals in a lot of slasher movies, Pamela Voorhees, you learn what that, why everyone is dying with a, with a bookend thing. It's, like, the very beginning of the movie and then the last... Uh, 10, 15 minutes of that movie is her monologue, but it's one fucking plot point. It's one monologue. And then they fight and then the movie's over. You got it. You're, you're fucking good. You're done. Um, Terror Train, another New Year's horror movie. Great example of here's your flashback in the beginning to set a problem up. Here's a year later or a couple of years later or whatever the fuck. And then here's who the killer was all the time. It's predictable. It's paint by numbers. Prom Night, another fucking horror movie that that only reveals its killer in the last couple of minutes. But it gives you everything you need throughout the film and in those last few minutes to make sense. This is just like word salad. I don't like mean to come down on it so hard because I like this movie a lot. It's fucking fun to watch. I love how it looks. I like it. But it's baffling. It is. And word salad is a good way to put it. And sure, they're going for this unhinged, uh, psychotic, if not schizophrenic or whatever, because they're sort of throwing everything at the wall there, too, as far as as his psychopathy. They're just kind of throwing symptoms at the wall and whatever sticks. It, it's just he's generally crazy, right? He, he falls under the umbrella of crazy in whatever way, shape or form you want to define it. And if we don't have a definition that fits, here's 10 more so it works for you. And they do the same thing with his reasoning. Just throwing shit at the wall. And it is ridiculous because it's sort of like all of this buildup, save the tidbit that these kills had some meaning, even loosely, for him in his life. His reasoning behind it, he could have done nothing through the whole movie and had this explanation of why he's killing his wife. You know, he could have just, it could have been somebody else killing all of these people entirely. And you really need that linkage for it to be hard hitting, believable, even entertaining. This is a canon film. Yes. And it kind of goes without saying that they like to throw things at the wall and see what mm-hmm. sticks. They just did it all in this one movie. And it's weird to me that this one has a, a better budget for the most part. And maybe I'll they're trying really hard to be a little more linear than most canon films and make a little more sense. But maybe that is part of the problem is that they were just throwing stuff at the wall in that canon way and seeing what sticks and not really caring if it all made sense at the end. Because at the end of the day, we have Derek. Derek as our linchpin. And we were going to have an electric boogaloo. Is there a part two of this movie? Not to my knowledge. Now, don't 
I also didn't look it up, but in all the years, I have never heard of a New Year's Evil 2. They definitely set it up because, like, Derek straight up has murdered someone and is now wearing the Nixon mask. And I was like, is this going to be like one of those things where, like, if they did a sequel, it's like, it's about that crazy killer that wears the vague, creepy Nixon mask, not um, uh, owning up to the fact that, like, it's not really about he only wore the Nixon mask in like the last couple of seconds of the first movie, but whatever. But uh, no, there is no electric boogaloo. There is, uh, to my knowledge, whatsoever. Which is crazy. And I really wish, like you said, that this mask played a bigger role in this film, even if he would just slip it on. Like he's carrying his switchblade around his costume changes around he abandons the car at the drive-in so i don't know where he's carrying all this stuff he's got his tape deck he's got all of this fucking stuff so it's like a rpg where i don't know where you're storing all these wooden plates but you've got them and your dragon bones your 14 different sets of armor and three helmets and a bucket like i don't fucking know where he's putting all this stuff but he's got magic pockets is this your diablo inventory no that was my skyrim inventory (laughs) but if he would have just slipped this mask on at one point at the end of all these kills right before killing somebody it would have had a lot more weight to it and i don't know how far-fetched it is or even if it was an afterthought or if i'm the first person to refer to him as tricky dick because that's what Nixon was known as. He's wearing a Nixon mask. His name is Richard. What he's doing is pretty <laughs> tricky. So I don't know if that's part of why he was wearing a Nixon mask or if it was like the only mask available when they were shooting this two months before it was released. Throwing things at the wall, seeing if they stick sounds like exactly what they were doing because th- this was filmed two months before this hit the shelves of December 1980, which is absolutely crazy to me it's this combination i hate my wife but i also hate women and i'm killing a specific kind of women woman that does not look like my wife and so that is weird in and of itself because you'd think well why would you have him just killing young pretty blonde women if his wife isn't i mean she's not ugly but she's not blonde i think she's like a redhead or something um, so like, where is this coming from? And then it's just like, oh, he just hates his wife. Well, then what is killing every, all these other random people have to do with that then? Also the stuff with Derek and, and Richard, I, I think how you streamline and fix this film is if you had Richard there the entire time with Blaze comforting her and trying to do all this stuff while he has turned his son into an attack dog of sorts. So you have a tandem killers who like scream or to all a good night. And then you have Richard saying he wanted to, we wanted to kill you together because we're tired of, he's tired of you ignoring her and he just wants love and affection of a woman. And so the pretty blonde girls that he's killing is just because that's what his son likes. And, and then this is all just to like terrorize her. And it's like, why did you do this? It's like, because I wanted you to feel like you weren't in control. You're here 
all of this, all of this, like everything is so timed and, and your makeup is so perfect and your dress is so pretty and all these people hang on your every word and you are the master of ceremonies. You are literally throughout all time zones in this country. Everyone is following you while I am dismantling your mind and terrorizing you and telling you that I'm in control and you're not in control and, and you will never ignore our son again. And this is why we're killing you. There's your movie. Improves it tenfold. Tenfold. So we need to have an actual ending that makes sense to mm-hmm. this movie and more masks. <laughs> I like it. That's our New Year's thing. We didn't do a proper Christmas episode, but this counts. And I was actually kind of thinking, um, I really like New Year's. And I think I like New Year's not because like I like to like party and drink and or like I kind of believe in like, I do like to drink, but... I'm, I'm not my partying years are are, you know, f- far behind me. Um, I just like I, like it's after all the stress of Christmas and you don't have to buy anyone anything and you get to just sort of like everyone's all excited, even though like, you know, whatever you think about like New Year's resolutions or the, or this notion of like um, this notion of like. Oh, the, 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 the calendar is going to change and then your whole life is ahead of you. Cause like, you know, I get really sick and tired of like, I think it's ever since 2016, people have been telling me that this is the worst year ever and it can't get any worse. And then next year they're like, no, this is the worst year. I'm just, I'm tired of all that, but I genuinely like really like the vibe. And this movie reminds me of like the vibe, the good vibes. It's just a silly movie that can carry you into the next year and it doesn't mean anything but it doesn't have to because you know new year's is only has a meaning because we've applied one to it so like i i I really sort of like dig that aspect and um yeah but this is um that's what i was thinking about when i was watching this movie i also um thought to myself oh i'm watching this like we're recording this uh, christmas eve eve so I was thinking, oh, now I don't have this movie to watch. Uh, Cass was saying to me, oh, don't worry. We can watch this movie again on New Year's Eve. I I just thought to myself for a second and I was like, mm, yeah, yeah, we got it. Like, I got it. I don't need to. We'll wait till next year. <laughs> One week doesn't make that. I guess you'll have to watch Terror Train. You know, you're gonna... we're out of New Year's movies to watch, basically, yeah. aren't we? I mean, there aren't a lot of them, like we mentioned, and um, I don't know what we'll do for next year, for New Year's Eve. We'll have to find a new one. There's going to be something, I swear, or something that tangentially mentions it. The way that I think Hell House, um, or Legend of Hell House, is a Christmas movie, because in the book, it ends on Christmas. It ends the day before Christmas, and it starts the day after my birthday. I thought it had started Mm -hmm. on my birthday, so I always watch it somewhere in there. Um, But I forget that it's the book that ends with the line, Merry Christmas, and the movie doesn't. I thought the movie ended should. with Happy New Year. It would be great if it no? did. No, it doesn't. They they don't even reference the date. They don't even reference that it's like the 24th of December when they finally you... escape Hell House. Very random. I, I keep thinking that it they do mention the holiday throughout it, but they don't. But it does happen over the days leading up to Christmas. But yeah, so I don't know what we're going to watch next year at all. You, um... Uh, speaking of Hell House, uh, I just always remember that you have an old dog-eared copy of Hell House that always made me, I was like, man, that's a beautiful edition. Wasn't it the one that has like the orange pages 
or something like that. It, yeah, and it has actually fallen right in half. Oh, what a the shame! The spine is finally mm. given out. Yeah, I need a new copy of that quite badly. Speaking of older films, we had recently talked about Just Before Dawn, which isn't that old, but it's an older film. And the director had contacted me, Jeff Lieberman. So hello, Mr. Lieberman, if you are listening. It turns out that he and I had chatted previously before. Another holiday film we had covered, Satan's Little Helper. (laughs) He also directed that. And that's one of my most favorites. So I hope that maybe he'll put out a New Year's film. That'd be super cool too. We'll have to take a look through the annals of time. Holy shit. And see if there are other... I completely fucking forgot about that. Wow. Uh, listeners, if you don't, Satan's Little Helper, um, that was one of our first episodes. That was when we were doing Halloween movies, and I don't think we were even doing commentary tracks yet. Yep. And I was so pleased that he had tuned in so that, that long ago to listen to us talk about one of his films, and again, to hear us talk about one of his films. And it's neat that we had picked one of the lesser-known, more recent gems of his and Mm -hmm. then covered uh, such a landmark film as Just Before Dawn. So I thought it was very cool of him to reach out. Oh, wow. That's awesome. We've only been contacted a few times. I wonder if we'll be contacted by anyone from Canon about talking about this particular film. Do you want to know something I was thinking about about that silent lady? Just before we get out of here, I just want to talk one more thing about that lady that barely speaks. When I first started watching this movie, I thought... That she didn't. I always notice when people don't have dialogue. I always notice who speaks in roles and who doesn't. Because as you know, or maybe you don't, I, I think you probably do. If you speak in a movie, not only do you get more money, but you are you automatically become a card-carrying member of SAG. So a lot of extras won't be given lines. Um, so you know, like you'll see characters, if you see one character singing and they have background singers and the singers are just like, they're just mumbling. They're not actually singing any words. Um, That's because they don't want to pay them and they don't want them to be SAG members. So I thought that this actress was just, you're a glorified extra. You're not getting paid extra. You, we don't want you to be a SAG member. And then my theory goes out the fucking window because she has speaking dialogue. So again, so then it's Lynchian. It's just weird for the sake of being weird. It's very weird. It's not only her that's weird. Everyone around her acts extra weird. Her roommate is aloof, of course, but her roommate's aloof of everybody. But that guy, the shopkeep that sells her the champagne or the liquor or whatever it is that she buys, is definitely weirded out by her like she's an alien presence. Or he's fishing for a tip. I don't know. It's just, it is a very it's, surreal I I hate moment. to use the term dreamlike, but like, yeah. y- you do you remember when we went to go see Nosferatu 1922, the first time you and I went to go see it? Because I can't remember if we went yeah. more than once, but the, the, the one time that I remember crystal clear, they're like with live music. And it was just like this kid with a guitar. And I was used to when I'd seen it previously and every time I've seen it afterwards, there's like a full band playing along. And this time I was like, oh, there's just like a, there's just like a skinny little teenager with a guitar. And it ended up being my 
all-time favorite viewing of that because this kid, hey, this kid was very talented, and he just droned and droned and droned on that guitar and matched it with the movie. And and everyone refers to Nosferatu as dreamlike. And when I was sitting in the theater with you, I remember telling you afterwards, I was like, I feel like that fucking movie is like was like hypnotizing me. Like with the, with the guitar sounds and all the weird visuals that are in Nosferatu, like the whole thing was dreamlike. And I felt, yeah. And this, this is the same way I feel about new year's evil. There's no droning guitar. It's all the new wave fucking whatever prog rock that they're playing. I feel like this movie's hypnotizing me. That's how I feel about all of these weird scenes. Oddly, I find most of the music pulls me right out of anything that would have even remotely hypnotized me. But that scene with that non-speaking roommate, uh, I want to go back, though, now and take a look at the picture of the nun he has on the car when he's dressed as a priest and on his way to follow his plan before his plan gets fully derailed. I want to know if I can piece together at all how this would have fit into his past. I think... Okay, let's say he was from an orphanage raised by nuns, like the fucking Silent Night, Deadly Night guy. Punish. Maybe it's that. It's gotta be. It's gotta be. But I won't know till I look. Or if that nun was blonde, because that is part of his <laughs> shtick. So we've had a year of fantastic films. Even though we had a huge hiatus thanks to this pandemic, we still managed to pull it out of the Christmas stocking, as it were. You can see all the films that we've covered, which I keep looking at and mooning over, and I've updated it on Letterboxd. Take a look at Dead Air, and I'll share the link on social medias, too. Hmm. Yeah, that would be really, really awesome. Um, I love looking at all those films, but yeah, um, we don't know what we got next for you. I'm not even going to, like, gang, I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes I say, so what do we got next for them, Lydia? And I know full well that we have not discussed it. And then Lydia... It's a dick move. I'm, I'm being a dick. Lydia is like one of my very best friends. I love her so much. Um, and I'm just like, hey, dance, fucking figure it out. Go live. Go. Like, And then live. I edit out the conversation that we have because I'm like, I don't know. What were we doing next? And we actually have a band meeting right there. And then I edit it out. So it sounds like we knew what we were doing next when most of the time we don't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh we uh, we don't know what we're doing next. Uh, we, this is going to be our last show uh, for 2022 or 2021. Um, we'll be back in 2022 with something good. And uh, I don't know, but like, yeah, I'm glad to be back. And I was feeling like we were getting close to recording in the room again together. And guess what? Omicron, baby. Like the fucking cases are skyrocketing again. And I just don't, I work with the public and I don't want to risk getting Lids and Chris sick. Like, it's not worth it. Like, we've had some close calls at my work. I, I try to, I'm vaccinated and I try to be careful, but I just don't, it's not safe. I should, I should it'd be irresponsible. As much as I want to uh, do it the way that we were doing it, it's going to have to be this for a little while longer anyway. Yeah, the way that I was seeing it, I thought we were going to travel coming up soon, let alone be sitting in this very room or that very room recording the show live but no yeah it'll probably be in the spring more than likely until mm -hmm. then we'll be picking films and doing it this way our sound is still good so that's all that matters yeah. 
we just aren't able to bring you that live dead air reaction from watching the film <laughs> together at the same time. Today was probably the closest because we both watched this film this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, when we did Autopsy of Jane Doe, it had actually been like a couple of weeks since I had last seen it. So while we were recording the episode, I had it muted with the subtitles on because I'm facing my TV when I record. So like I would be talking to you and I'd be like, looking at the TV and I'd be like, hey, remember this scene that I'm literally just <laughs> looking at right now? That's handy, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I've only had to do that for a portion of blood vessel. I had to actually <laughs> stop and look at something. But yeah. yeah, it's so much easier when we get to record together. So March, maybe, who knows? We'll find out how this goes. Luckily, we've all been vaccinated and we've been healthy. So that's a plus. We're alive. <laughs> and on that note... I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to the final Dead Air of 2021, motherfuckers. Beep, 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 beep. And then we end with, like, something cool. Oh, I know. We'll try this one on for size. They can't see you giving them the finger.